The Whale Podcast, episode 257. What's your name, man? Wesley Very, man. That's so very. (laughs) (laughs) Extra. Uh, What what was your substance of choice or your DOC? Um, My DOC was opiates. However, I liked it all, man. Buffet style user. Yes. That's yeah, I, I liked it all, man. Whatever it was, give me more of it. Yeah. I got a friend who, when she introduces herself in meetings, she says, I'm addicted to more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Yep. I'm like, me too. What is your clean sober date? Uh, my, my clean date is October 2nd, 2017. Wow. That's a lot of 24 hours, bro. I was just thinking about that. It's coming up on a, another milestone there. I know. It's awesome, man. And it's weird because I swear the further I get into this thing, the weirder it is to me. I'm like, right. this is weird. Like, <laughs> no doubt. Like, I don't even know how to describe it, but it doesn't get any less weird. If anything, it gets more weird. <laughs> right. You right. know, that I'm clean and that I, you know, and that I was stuck that that way for so long. Like, what? Right, right. Doesn't make sense. What is your primary recovery program or pathway? I'm a 12 step guy. That works for me. I'm a 12 step guy too, man. I know. I Just know I- you know. I know you know. <laughs> How do you serve the recovery community? Oh, man. You know, I, I try to show up. Uh, recover out loud uh, you know when I definitely when I go to you know uh, a meeting or I'm out and about I uh, I try to introduce myself to especially people that I don't know yes uh, you know I try to be that that face that if somebody's nervous I you know give them my number yes. right chat with them for a little bit you know um, that's the try- make them feel welcome man Right. And kind of be loose with the conversation a little bit, you know, because I know what they're feeling. I know what they're going through. I was there once too, you know. No, that's awesome, dude. That's that's what we need, you know, and that's kind of what keeps us coming back when we're new is just knowing that, you know, wow, you know, like you're not because your your tendency is to try to isolate, right? To try to be the yep. person that hides in the corner, or doesn't speak yep. up or doesn't share, doesn't introduce yourself to people. But it makes it hard to uh, be an island when other people are coming up to you and introducing themselves to you and asking you questions about yourself, you know? Right. Um, it definitely changes that whole dynamic. They can't show up the next time and see those same faces that they sat and talked to and feel like they don't know anybody anymore, you know? Yep, I uh, I make my buddies too. If I'm at a meeting with a couple of people, I know I make them go talk to them too, just so that way if I'm not around, they are they recognize the face because it's always easier to come back when you recognize somebody. Hell yeah, no, I love that dude because that's so huge. You know, a lot of people don't do that. Mm-hmm. One thing that was drilled in my head early on was like, right, right. I should always be the hand that reaches out because. I may, be, I may be the only one that does, right? Exactly. Yeah, because if everybody else is always assuming that somebody else will do it. Nobody's going to do it. Exactly. <clears throat> Man, that's so true. Uh, what does recovery mean to you? 
everything. And I know I, I say that just quickly, but, um, you know, recovery is freedom. Um, it, it means so much that it's hard to, to, to basically break it down or describe it in a, a word or a few words or even, you know, a sentence. Um, recovery has given me the ability and the opportunities that I never would have had um, using or staying stuck in those old behaviors and those old ways. Um, so I guess basically the best way I can describe it is freedom. Um, freedom and, and a new a new sense of life. Um, you know, Jason, that's a tough question to ask because it's not really tough. It's just, to me, it means so much. It, it just, it's open-ended for a reason. It's endless. It's endless, man. Exactly. It's, it's an open-ended question for a reason, right? Because right. uh, it's, when you ask open-ended questions, it provokes thought and it provokes a lot more of a response. You know? Right. And there is so much, right? Like it, yeah. I always say it literally, if I focus on this one thing, you know, working the 12 steps in my case in the beginning, that was the one thing. If I put right. a concentrated effort into doing that, that it ends up affecting everything. It bleeds into every aspect of my life. It It's changed every aspect, you know, of everything of life for me, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. Welcome Way Out faithful and first-timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and AllRecoveryRings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's AllRecoveryRings.com. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, 
And this week, the world's best recovery podcast co-host, Jason, has a powerful interview with person in long-term recovery, Wesley Vary. Wes talks about the utter unmanageability and insanity of his addictions, an insanity that also manifested in his relationships, which led him to be finally broken enough to stop talking and start listening to the solutions he was hearing in the rooms of 12-step recovery. His detailed accounts of his journey are emotionally charged and indeed extremely relatable. Ultimately, Wes's story is a true testament to the power of 12-step recovery to break the cycle of alcohol or drug addiction in anyone's life. So listen up. Hey, everybody out there. This is your trusty co-host, Jason. And I got with me today, Wesley Very. Say what's up, Wes. What up, y'all? Yeah. Wes is a brother from the from the neighborhood, you know, from my area, brother in recovery. Super stoked to have you on, man. Thanks for being no, here. I'm I'm grateful to be here, man. I mean, you know, you kind of asked me how why I'd never been on, and I simply said, well. Uh, I was never asked, but I didn't know that there was a process to being on here. So I'm actually glad that you kind of spurred me to uh, take some time and uh, get on here and share a little bit of me and Absolutely. me, I guess. You know, it's like <clears throat> you you mentioned in the in the introduction portion, you said, you know, you try to recover out loud. And this is that it, it is that right. Right. When we share our stories, it gives other people the ability to identify and, you know, relate and realize that maybe if this fucked up guy here, Wesley, can do it, then maybe I can right. do it. Right. This is yeah. true. Dude. So, people, anybody listening, if I can recover, <laughs> anybody can recover. I swear. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I I hear you. I'm I'm the same. I'm like, dude, for real. I was a lifer. I thought for sure I was a lifer. And I had been convinced of that for many, many years. So yes, yeah, sir. There, there is truth to the statement that you know, like recovery is a miracle after miracle. <laughs> it's a whole lot of miracles come together to make it happen, and it's just done by one step at a time. Uh, doing the next right thing. Yep. Know, putting in a concentrated effort on oneself. And Amen. I'm, and I'm grateful that you did this journey, dude. I've, I've, I was blessed to be there when you first came in. You and, were. And I watched you grow so much and take to it. And boy, you've changed. And, you know, I've <laughs> changed. We've, yes. Yeah, we've all changed so much. It's so cool to watch, dude, the growth. Right. I know. I love, I love watching people grow up in the program. Yeah, I'm still growing up, growing, Amen. not growing. I'm growing. <laughs> Real talk. You know what I mean? Um, so typically, you know, we should start where all stories start, right? Like at the beginning. So what, where'd you grow up? What was it like? Why don't you tell us a bit about your childhood? Yeah, man. Um, I, I was born in uh, 84. So I'm an 80s baby, you know, 90s grew up. I think I feel like personally 90s was the best era to grow up in. Yeah. Maybe 
biased, but whatever. Um, you know, I grew up in uh, in a little town in, in Kansas um, up until I was uh, in seventh grade. Um, you know, growing up in Kansas, it was amazing. Um, I have a lot, a lot of good memories. Um, you know, and and I'm a product of a of a single parent household. Um, my mother worked two jobs, you know, worked at the hospital as a nurse during the day, waited tables at night at the restaurant in town. Um, have an older sister who's, you know, quite a few years older than me. So I didn't really have any siblings around. So I, I made a lot of friends in the neighborhood. Um, when you live in a town of, you know, a couple thousand people, it's, it's, uh, it's, a small community. So you kind of, everybody knows everybody. And, uh, you know, all my friends lived in my neighborhood. So I was constantly at their house, constantly eating with them, spending the night school nights, you know, um, running around the neighborhood with them all day and night. Um, never really had any home structure, I guess. Uh, I, uh, you know, I remember being just probably, seven at the time um, was kind of when I feel like the trauma that caused me to become who I was as an adult happened. Um, I was sexually assaulted by my uh, babysitter's son, me and uh, my, my friend um, that were being babysat. We'd been over there a ton of times and it just happened to be this one time in, in particular that it happened. And, you know, I went through some, some therapy and I kind of, uh, I guess I changed a little bit. Um, I sort of started, uh, expressing myself in different ways. Um, I think that was around that same time as the first time that I actually, uh, did anything. I, I smoked a cigarette for the first time around eight, nine, 10 years old. Um, did I like it? No, not really, but it was cool to do. I felt like I was real cool, you know, because I grew up in the time where Joe Camel and the Marlboro Man were on TV, right? So yep. it was cool to smoke, you know. Um, it looked on it wasn't that cool, right? Um, but, you know, I uh, outside of that one isolated incident, I, I I have nothing negative to say. You know, I was about 11 years old when I rolled a four wheeler, almost killed myself. Um, you know, and uh, around that same time, my mom ended up, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, she uh, had some back issues and she ended up having a uh, tumor on her spine. Um, so I, I remember. When that happened, she had to retire, medically retire from, or she went on medical disability. And uh, that was the year that everything changed. You know how, like, you go from getting everything you want, you know, um, for Christmas, your birthdays, you know, having all the, the cool new toys to literally a couple of cool toys and mostly socks and underwear for Christmas, you know, like, things are bad. Um you know, I, I never went without a bed to sleep in. The lights were never off and I always have food in my stomach. So I'm grateful for those things that my mother always supported or always made sure that that were taken care of. Right. She always made sure that that stuff was always there for me. Um, as much as she struggled, um, at least I didn't have to go without any food or 
uh, without a bed to sleep in or the lights weren't ever on. Um, you know, so I'm grateful for that. Uh, yes. But yeah, growing up as a kid, I didn't, I wasn't really around like drugs and alcohol much. So like, I didn't really have that, but I, I was that kid that I didn't want to listen. You know, I was kind of doing my own thing, you know, dabbled. I was puffing on cigarettes here and there, you know, stealing them from my buddy's parents, that kind of stuff. Um, but nothing too major. It's later on in my teenage years is where it really, you know, took off and yeah. really went in a downward spiral real fast. But, you know. So when you got in that four-wheeler accident, did did you suffer some pretty severe injuries or what? Uh, well, so funny thing is, is uh, when I rolled the four-wheeler, I, so I, I clipped a, uh, a pole on a chain link fence and it rolled the four-wheeler over and I slid across about 40 feet of concrete. Mm. Um, no helmet on. I shouldn't have been on the four wheeler anyway. Um, luckily there was a guy that, um, watched me and my friend ride up and down the alley all day. Um, he either heard it or saw it happen. He came over and pulled the four wheeler off of me. Um, by the grace of God, I just had, uh, I, I have a bald spot on my head to this day where it literally ripped the hair right out of my scalp. Um, I, I blacked out for a moment, um, other than some cuts and bruises, um, by the grace of God that nothing was broken. Um, you know, wow. I, I think I lucked out. Um, I have a feeling though, if that, that guy hadn't have come when he did, I may not be here. I may have, you know, died in that. Cause, uh, I was trapped underneath that thing. I mean, I was what, 12 years old, probably 11 underneath, a you know, a big trail boss working for me that are a big old machine. I should have never been on. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I, I only really asked that question because I think of when, um, I mean, the, even, even with what, what it was that happened, I mean, there could be trauma attached to that, but you know, if, if somebody goes through like some sustained, some really horrible injuries, um, extended hospital stays and, uh, you know, hardcore pain medications and, and just the pain, the physical pain of, uh, the injury. And then, you know, the repair work and the recovery of that is like, that's traumatic too, you know, for a lot of people. So, right. And, and I'm, I, I don't know how else to describe it other than I'm, I'm, God was watching over me when that happened, that I walked away from the thing with some, just some bruises and some scratches, right. Kind of you know and then uh, uh what they called it was like a blood blister on my on my scalp that um ended up it, it root, ripped the roots right out so to this day i have a bald spot on my head about the size of a half dollar nice so that's a uh, uh, forever memory i'll have but that's the worst that i came out of it so i guess i'm very grateful and lucky that yeah. that's all i have you know? that's a trip man wow yeah you get you were blessed you you were blessed you Amen. <laughs> yeah yeah so then moving forward uh mm-hmm. into your teen years what yeah keep going so keep going. it would have been about 97 96 i want to say uh we moved from kansas up to wisconsin um and you know people ask well why the hell did you move to wisconsin because uh my mom had a sister that lived up in Wisconsin. So we kind of moved close. And then um, also my mom dealing with a lot of back stuff, the Mayo Clinic was in this area. So 
that was sort of why we came up here for like the healthcare system was a little bit better than it was in Kansas. Um, but I remember uh, I got up here, it was January. I want to say the first or say it was Super Bowl Sunday that I got here, 96, when uh, Brett Favre won a Super Bowl in New Orleans. Mm. Uh, and I think that's when I became a Packer fan um, from the very first day I wound up in Wisconsin. Um, so, you know, I'm green and gold, so I'm dead and cold. I just have to throw that out there. So I may lose <laughs> a lot. I may lose a lot of people at that point, but um, it's cool. Um, You're hilarious. <laughs> no, you know, so like when I moved up here, I didn't, you know, I was always able to make friends. So I was, you know, going into seventh grade. Um, it was easy for me to make friends. Uh, I, uh, I had no problem hanging out with like all the neighborhood kids. Um, my best friend who turned out to be mostly pretty much through middle school and high school, um, lived three houses, uh, up the hill from me. So we hung out quite a lot and, uh, me and that kid, uh, we, we got into a lot of, a lot of trouble there after about eighth grade. It had to have been the summer of our eighth grade year going into freshman seventh and eighth was wasn't so bad you know I played sports I you know football wrestling that kind of stuff um I was all about the sports and and doing that kind of stuff early on I guess I think more so because that's what him and his group of friends were doing so I kind of well I can fit in with that it was sort of like a chameleon and I feel like I've been a chameleon kind of my whole life I can get in with just about any group of people I I'm around or I any situation I can kind of adapt and and acclimate myself to that situation that I'm in so Right. I think I you know, got involved with sports and that kind of stuff. Um, I was involved with sports when, in Kansas, but more so in seventh and eighth grade, because that's what my, um, my best friend and all his friends were, were into. So I kind of did all that with them. And then going into my freshman summer, uh, that's the first time I really um, started even being around booze and drugs um, again, I had met some people, so it's funny how, like, once eighth grade is over, you're going into high school, how that all changes, right? Cause like your summers in like seventh grade to eighth grade, aren't really like a wow for, for me anyway, it wasn't like this night and day change, but it felt like from eighth, eighth grade to ninth grade, it was like completely different. Like the doors fell off. Um, I was, you know, first dabbling with just pot right smoking some brown just you know some seedy stemmy garbage you know mexican brick weed um but i remember getting um the first time i smoked pot it was at a friend's house uh, and my friend uh she told me you don't have to do anything all you have to do is is hit it so i did that and i remember loving the feeling of smoking weed um, I feel like for the first time I actually could enjoy myself, like honestly. Right. And that, that's so cliche. And that's so now I look back on it and that's bullshit. But I feel like once I started using substances, I couldn't get enough. Um, and for me, I guess we'd ended up being that gateway that triggered me into other things. Um, you know, so you're 16 years old and you're uh, partying on the weekends, you know, 
field parties. I grew up in small town USA, a thousand and some change, you know, people in, in town. And so you party a lot either at somebody's house, in their garage, you know, keg parties pretty much on a regular basis. Um, or you, you party in a field during the summer, you know, um, it just, it went on and it was just every weekend or, and then it, it turned into, you know, a few days a week, um, turned into quit all sports. And then now it was smoking a joint or two before I even walked into school. Um, you know, so freshman year was, was kind of the start of everything. And then sophomore year was where I started experimenting with other drugs like mushrooms, cocaine, um, and then this drug called crank. Um, mm. yeah. See, you say, mm, cause you, you know, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. No, um, the first hit of crank I ever did, man. Oh, I, I went to a whole nother planet, man. Um, uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, and I couldn't get enough of it. And then from that point forward, I think it was just more, but I mean, I was, you know, I was doing, uh, you name it acid, you know, mushrooms. It didn't matter. Give me more, you know? Right. Um, but I really liked that pink stuff, man. It was, that was, that was where it was. And then, you know, you fast forward into the following year. So now I'm a junior. Things are really starting to heat up as far as my addiction goes, but I didn't realize it at the time. No. Um, um, I thought I was just having fun. I thought I had it under control. I thought, Oh, it's all good. You know, this is what, this is what kids in high school do. They experiment, right. Yep. And for themselves, um, this is completely normal. I'm not doing anything. Right. wrong. <laughs> right. Well, um, it, and then it, uh, went from crank into, uh, I don't know if you know, but the uh, anhydrous dope. Mm -hmm. um, basically, yes. It, it, how I can describe it is it's basically the dope they were making in Breaking Bad. It's similar to that. It a little went a long way. Um, and from that point forward, man, when you're hanging out with several people that are cooking dope, it's easy to fuel an addiction when it's free. Yep. I don't know how many times I let my car out to go on anhydrous runs and, and what they called smurfing, which well, this was before, you know, there was a restriction on Sudafed. So we'd go buy out entire stores, you know, Walmart, CVS, Walgreens, whatever store had it, we would buy as much Sudafed as we possibly could. This was before they regulated it. You know, you needed an ID, you could go in and buy 30 boxes of Sudafed. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> you know, so we, I remember doing that and just going in and, and, you know, the guy, the cook that is giving me the, the money to buy the pills. All I have to do is go do this to get free dope. Well, I did it because I wanted free dope. Cause by then, um, meth had a, had a hold of my balls man. and, uh, yeah, exactly. It, it was, uh, it was a pretty rough, you know, junior into my senior year. Um, didn't really go to school much. If I did, it was just to find out what was going on or, you know, get some dope or, you know, whatever, just party. Um, right. 
So, you know, school really wasn't my thing. I don't think I took a book bag home all four years of high school. I don't <laughs> even know how I made it to my senior year. Um, you know, as funny as after, even at, with all the shit that I was doing, I still had no legal troubles at all yet. Right. I hadn't got caught up with the law at all. I kind of, so I felt like I was, you know, untouchable almost like I can, I'm, I'm, I can do this without, with impunity. I can use and live the lifestyle and, and be who I am and nothing is going to bad is going to happen to me, you know? Right. Um, and that, and that doesn't help either when you don't have any consequences for your actions. Right. And my poor mom, I, I played off her and I, um, being so naive that, you know, um, she, she wanted, I think she wanted to believe that I was getting high. Uh, but, uh, she, I think it was turn, turn cheek kind of thing. Um, yeah. she didn't, she didn't want to admit that her, her baby boy was, uh, you know, using drugs. Um, right. so she believed basically everything I had. I don't know if she believed it, but she, she bought everything that I told her, you know, I, I did all my homework at school. I did it all in study hall. Why don't you bring a bag home? Oh, I got it all done. There's no sense in me bringing books home, you know, but yeah. a high school student brings home a book bag regularly from school. Not ever. Um, right. you know, so when I get into my senior year, that's when things are starting to evolve and I'm not, I don't see it at the time, but now I'm starting to get this ego and this very, like, I can do whatever I want and I'm going to be this big, badass drug dealer. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to live the lifestyle. I'm going to do all this because it's so easy to sell dope because all my people sell dope and I see how they do it. And I see the, the money they're making and the things that they're getting. And I was so influenced by that. So I remember, um, I got kicked out of school. I got expelled. Um, two weeks before Christmas break on my senior year. So I was never, I never completed school, but that just gave me more time to party. So I was okay with it. Right. Uh, you know? Uh, so um, by this time I'm 17, it's uh, around Christmas time. Actually it was January. Um, and I, my birthday was a couple months. So I was about to be 18 um, riding around. I don't know. It was probably one o'clock in the morning. I have a quarter pound of some, just some dirt weed underneath my passenger seat. You know, I have the scale, the zip, the, um, the sandwich baggies. And I have it all. I have paraphernalia in my car riding around with a busted taillight, um, drive past a, a Dunn County Sheriff because it was St. Croix County is where I grew up. I lived right next to Dunn County. Um, if anybody knows Dunn County, it's the worst County to get a drug charge in. Um, I tried, I thought I was being clever and I tried to get away from him. Um, turns out that I not as clever as I think. Uh, so I ended up getting pulled over, um, arrested, charged with felony possession with intent to sell a quarter pound of marijuana at 17 years old. They tried me, they, they charged me as an adult. So I'm looking at a felony right out of the gate prison time before I'm even 18 years old. Um, wow. so yeah, you know, and, and that you would think that getting in a little bit of legal trouble would stop you, but it didn't man being 17, um, charged with a felony, um, with uh felony possession of 
THC with a quarter pound with intent to deliver, um, being sentenced to a year of probation. Uh, I had to do certain things. I had to get it, you know, be employed um, and get my GED were the two things that I had to do in order to have it reduced from a felony to a misdemeanor. Um, and it's so weird how back then they were running job core commercials. I don't know if you know job core at all, or remember those commercials. Dude, um, my little brother was in job core, uh, years ago and it, yeah, I actually picked him up when he, after he graduated from there, but dude, like, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm just going to keep, yeah, I'm going to keep letting you go because you're on flow, but bro, yeah. there's so much I relate to so far yeah. in what you're saying. Yeah. But, um, so, um, the whole corp, so I got charged in January of, oh, I want to say 2001. Yeah. Because <laughs> 2001 and uh, I turned 18 in 2002. Uh, March of 2001, two. Anyway, regardless, I was 18, about to be 19 when I went to Job Corps, right? Well, I was supposed to be um, 18. I ended up getting into Job Corps right after I turned 19. Um, so this would have been, see, I'm 84, 94. Yeah, 02, 2000, March of 2002, I ended up in Job Corps. Um, and I had to go to the end of 2002 on probation. Um, but the only way my probation officer was going to allow me to go to job corps was I had to have face-to-face meetings every two weeks, like I had been doing and, um, random UAs were the two requirements. Um, and I didn't realize how good of uh, a manipulator I was at the time, you know, cause I was just a young pup in my skills. Um, I guess you could call me a novice, um, but I, uh, somehow she believed me that, uh, I was going to have face-to-face visits with my PO and they transferred my case up North, uh, Wisconsin. And, um, funny part is, is I didn't see my PO the entire time I was in job Corps until like the last month I was there and I was about to leave. Um, so that was probably the easiest year of probation I ever did, but when I went to job Corps, I didn't quit. I just, okay. Back up just a touch. Um, right before I went to job Corps, um, I would, my meth use had really, um, done something to me. Um, from basically the time that I was dealing with the court process with the, um, weed charge, I, um, was off and running with the meth and, um, I never shot up meth. Thankfully. Uh, and I'm glad I didn't. Um, but the way I was doing it, it didn't matter any other way, but shoot it up, um, eat it, snort it, smoke it, swallow it. It didn't matter. Um, right. But I do remember one specific moment where I had been up and it's about five days now, um, driving the car. We were about to go do some more dope party for, I don't know, however long we were going to party for, um, and, and, and people laugh when I tell this story, but it is the God's honest truth, Jason, that I literally, I was remember riding in the passenger seat of my buddy's car and there was 
two people in the backseat. My buddy was driving. And I remember it was a full moon, big giant moon. At least it was giant in my eyes because I had been up for so many days. Um, but the moon literally had an entire face and it was talking to me. I don't know what it was saying. I just remember it mouth, its mouth moving like so fast <laughs> that I looked away and I looked back and it was still talking to me. Um, you were tripping, dog. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, everybody in the car laughed at me when I told them this because nobody else saw what I was seeing, right? For sure. So after that five days and the moon talking to me, bro, I felt like I can't, my mind is going to crack if I keep doing this. I I shouldn't mess with this meth shit no more. Right. Well, it didn't stop. I just went to bed for about three days. Um, I remember waking up just to get something to drink, maybe eat something and go right back to bed. Um, Because I used to live for that shit. Like my favorite was when I would start getting real real goofy dude when i was starting to hallucinate like that was the shit for like that's what i was looking for and it took days to get there to your point you know and i would i would live for that shit like i loved doing um filters you know because that was all the garbage that isn't even you know that even the cook doesn't want to give you yeah but that's the shit that makes you like trip your balls off yeah, and, I know. I used to do a lot of that, dude. And then in yeah. in like, you know, to your point, you know, like after being up for days, you know, it's like you could smoke some weed or something and it would re- we used to call it the dumb, smoking the dumb. Yeah. Cuz it would yes. make you retarded, but I liked but I wanted to get retarded. Like that was what I looked for. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I you know and 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 to me personally, I'm glad that I didn't enjoy that feeling. Like yeah, I like most people don't, it's too out of control. Right. I liked, you know, a day two, three was really after that. It was like by the third day, I, I have to sleep. Like I can't do any more dope. But back then, like if you did a line, you're up for like another six to 10 hours. Like, so you really had to watch like how much dope you would do throughout the day. If you wanted to sleep at night, you know, right. Right. um, but uh, I, I I continued on that path for quite a while, and then so you know, um, it's right around February March two thousand two, um, or two thousand, yeah, two thousand three. Um, I remember looking in the mirror in my mom's house in the bathroom, and uh, I looked like a, a a walking skeleton, man. Yeah, my eyes were sunk into my head. My cheeks were sunk in. You know, you could, my cheekbones were protruding out of my face. Right. Uh, I had lost 30 pounds in a couple of weeks. Um, back then, you didn't eat um, when you were doing fluff. You had no appetite. You didn't do not, anything. Not on that shit. Nope. You did. That's all you did was more dope. Um, so when I saw that. You remember um, Yoohoo? Yeah. It's yeah. still in the store, Yoohoo. And it, yeah, yeah. it's like a chocolate milk kind of drink, right. but there's egg in it. And that was that was my food. Like I lived off like if I was feeling hungry, I would go get a couple Yoohoos. That right. was my fucking food. Little dude. protein gets you keep you going, keep you give you some nutrients. This is weird. Um, you know, so I I didn't want that anymore because I looked dead. Like when I was in the bathroom, you could see just so 
the bathroom at my mom's house, it was in the middle of the house and there was just a little tiny like square window above the shower, like on the wall at the very top of the shower. So there was just a little bit of light coming through right? and I couldn't see my eyes. I literally looked, my face looked like the skeleton in the mirror. And uh, that really scared me, dude. It really fucking scared me. Um, and I guess this, you know, I look back on it now and, and I wasn't, I, I grew up with God and all that. Um, but I wasn't like, I didn't really see it as God moments, but, um, that job court commercial came on and I felt like this is my chance to go get away from where I'm at and start over. Yeah. Um, because I didn't want to do meth anymore. Right. Um, but I didn't know about treatment. I didn't know about any of that stuff. I just was on probation job course calling my name. I need my GED. They'll pay, they'll get me my GED and I can get some job training for a year and they'll pay me to do it. They pay me to stay there. Sounds good to me. I'm, you know, 19 years old. What else I got to do? I'm unemployed. I need a job. Right. So that all happened so quickly. And I ended up in job Corps in Leona, Wisconsin. It's up by Rhinelander. And yeah, uh, that's the same place my brother went. <laughs> yeah, man. It's uh, let me tell you, it was a great experience. Um, However, I was smoking weed and drinking liquor pretty much every weekend. Yep. Um, so I wasn't really sober. Uh, funny part is, is when you go there and you fail a drug test, um, it's okay. You can fail your first one because they, they figure a lot of people are going to fail their first one. Right. Um, but the thing is, is when I went there is if you fail your first drug test, um, they, they, you have to take these required AOTA classes, which is alcohol and drug classes. Yeah. Um, and it's a requirement. You have to go to these classes like once a week or a couple times a week. And you have to get a sort of uh, basically a passing grade from there, which it's, it wasn't really hard to pass. And then in 30 days, they test you again and you had to have nothing in your system. So I was good for that first month, right? Because I didn't want to get kicked out because I knew if I got kicked out, my PO is going to know I'm going to be a felon. I'm going to go to jail, prison, whatever. Right. And I'm going to have this felony on my record for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, so I was good for a little bit enough to skirt the system. Right. So now I'm starting to hone my skills and manipulation because now I'm with some guys that are all about the criminal world and about, yeah. you know, that lifestyle. So yeah. now I'm really starting to like get a taste of all that. Um, I end up getting kicked out of there because uh, a kid got slick with me and I punched him in his forehead. Um, that's frowned upon. Yeah. Um, but I, <laughs> it's frowned I, upon. I, uh, I didn't, but the good thing is, is like I got my GED right away in the first couple months. So I had got, I had attained that. So I was okay. Like getting kicked out. It was fine. I got my GED. That was part of, you know, having to uh, 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 requirements of being on probation. So I, I, I got that. And um, by this time, my, my probation was just about up. So I wasn't really too concerned with probation. Um, I met a girl there. So me getting kicked out wasn't really a big deal. Um, we were hanging out. I remember coming up. She left basically the same weekend I did. Uh, I don't know. You can call it puppy love, whatever you want to call it, 19 years old, you know, um, I guess, uh, more, more so not love, but lust it was, right. uh, so she ended up leaving, um, get out of job core. I moved back to my mom's just for a little while. We get an apartment in Hudson 
uh, Wisconsin and, um, for about six months. And then we end up moving to, you know, and, and at this time I'm, I remember turning 21 waiting outside the bar in Hudson, um, to get a couple drinks. Um, and then I went home, uh, smoked a little bit of weed cause weed was a regular thing for me. Um, I felt like I could control weed. Yeah. Um, and it was sort of one of those things like, you know, I didn't really get in trouble when I smoked pot. So I preferred to, I always preferred to get high over getting drunk because I felt like I had quote unquote more control if I was high than if I was drunk. Yeah. Um, but uh, I remember being 21 and like the bar wasn't a big deal because when you grow up in a small town, you can go to the bar and if you don't act stupid, they're not going to say anything to you. You get somebody old enough to buy you drinks. It's no big deal. So I was in the bars from 16, 17, 18 years old. I had been in the bars already. So going to the bar at 21 wasn't really a big deal, you know? Yeah. It was like, what else? Yeah. It's it's so funny because same, 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 man. I, I remember hitting the bars, uh, very young. Yeah. Probably about 18 or something, but I was like a, I looked like a baby forever, but for real. I remember buying cigarettes at 16, you know, from the, yeah. the corner store that I had a friend that was a year older than me worked there. And when she worked there, she'd sell me cigarettes. So it, it was nothing. I, you know, it was, it was easy when you grow up in a small town, like I said, you know, everybody, everybody knows you. So it's easy yeah. to get what you need, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I end up, you know, with her, we get an apartment and uh, we live there for a few months and then we end up moving back. She's from Milwaukee originally. So, that was when I first moved to Milwaukee and got my first taste of a big city. Granted, Milwaukee is not a big city. You know, it's only a few hundred thousand people. I want to say right now it's probably close to 300,000. But to me, that was like New York City. You know what I mean? Like yeah. coming from somebody Small with, town. right, like county roads, dirt roads to like, you know, towers and 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 just the hustle and bustle of a city, you know, public transportation. I didn't have that where I was at. Um, So I remember moving to Milwaukee um, right after I turned 21. Um, And uh, that's her family is a a whole family of heavy drinkers and drug users. So getting weed and drinking on a regular basis was no big deal when i lived right behind her cousin who always had a bong full of weed and a and a case of beer yeah um so that's what i did you know um drink beer and smoke pot on a regular basis um didn't really have any type of successful employment kind of just temp jobs here and there um but uh she was very very bipolar unmedicated uh so i stayed in that relationship for almost 6 years um, and then, uh, so that would have been, well, I want to say 2008. So from about 2003 to 2008, end of 2008, somewhere around there, I meet, um, who eventually was the mother of my children. When I was working at a Denny's, I was cooking. She was the new waitress. Um, funny part is, is, uh, my kid's mom was, um, she was getting out. Um, basically it was like the workhouse, like we would call it, you know, she would get out, go to work and then go back to jail for a DUI that she had gotten. She had to do 30 days, but she got out on work release. So we start hanging out after she gets out of jail, you know, um, just simple stuff, you know, hanging out, going to the bar, 
Um, and I call it an alcoholic because my first ever taste of an AA meeting was of support for her. But the funny part about it is after the AA meeting, we ended up at a bar drinking. So that was kind of interesting. Um, yeah, dude, that's good. That's enough to make anybody want to drink. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, especially when you go to those and you're like, oh, I don't have a problem. You guys are all fucking nuts, you know? Um, so I'm 25, 26. Um, and this is where my addiction took a turn. And it sent me down a path that I can only describe as dark and, and, and deadly. Um, when I met uh, my kid's mom, she, uh, and I don't like to say baby mama because I feel like that's derogatory. She's the mother of my children. So I like to refer to her as my kid's mother. Um, most people know who she is, but I'll leave her name out of this just for anonymity's sake. Um, but uh, she, when I met her, she had broke she had a, a broke her wrist. So she had a cast on and she was prescribed, um, Vicodin. Um, I had never took an opiate before in my life, <clears throat> never really was around it. Um, never really had an opportunity to. So I, th I don't think, I think just not having an opportunity is why I never took it. I think if I had an opportunity, I probably would have. Totally. Um, and I say that because the first time I took a Vicodin, Jason, Everybody has that one, at least from what I've heard, um, everybody has that one substance that really makes them feel whole, right? And yeah, I smoked pot and I knew I liked smoking pot, right? And I did meth and I liked doing meth. I think I just like drugs. But when I got to opiates, the euphoria that I got off of one yellow Vicodin was like nothing I, I ever experienced in my entire life. Yeah. Um, and it started out like, she didn't know I smoked pot. I hid that from her. I didn't know that she had, um, prescription, um, Vicodin, you know, opiates. So once the cat's out of the bag is like, Oh, you want to smoke a little pot? She hadn't really ever smoked pot. Oh, well, you never taken a Vicodin here. Take one of these. We'll smoke a bowl. Well, I don't really have to get too into detail, but it was a lot of sex, drugs, and rock and roll from that point forward. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I didn't really have much going for my life, but I know that when you, I took a Vicodin maybe once or twice, you know, on the weekends or something, and that turned into, um, well, let's just say we met and within three months we had gotten an apartment. Uh, I had lost my job. She finalized her divorce and we were pregnant with our first child all within a span of three months. Yeah. Now I say that she'd finalized her divorce. She'd been separated from her ex-husband for a year or two before that. It just finally came through the court system and finally was finalized right after we met. Um, so it wasn't like she was stepping out on her husband. She didn't leave me for her husband. That was long over. Right. Um, and, and during all this, she had lost custody of her daughter. Um, her daughter was probably a year and a half, almost two years old. When I, when I met her mother, um, and so it was kind of a package deal, you know, um, she's just getting her kid back. So now we have a two bedroom apartment, you know, things are, things are looking really good. Um, but I didn't realize that this little habit that we're developing together is the start of something very, very bad. Right. Um, but again, it was manageable, right? So, um, about six months after I met her, her mother, um, ended up passing away, uh, 
left her a sizable um, inheritance um, to the tune of about 80 grand uh, when it was all said and done, maybe a little less. Um, But I'll tell you, Jason, uh, that year of inheritance, it would have been February 2009. um, Up until my kid was born. Uh, I don't remember much. Uh, we were buying whole prescriptions. Um, when you have that kind of money, you can afford to spend two, three, four hundred dollars on an entire bottle of oxycodone, oxycontin, whatever it was. Um, you know, on my my little, you know, Vicodin, ten milligram Vicodin, one or two here and there had had slowly progressed into, you know, now I need oxy oxycodone. I need, you know, a, a perk 10, a perk 15 to, by the end of it all, you know, flash forward a couple of kids now, um, uh, uh, opioid addiction for a couple of years. Um, we ended up getting a, a, a townhouse in the middle of all this after she got her settlement and we're still, you know, involved with all that. Um, drinking a lot, using a lot of pills, smoking a lot of weed doing cocaine here and there, mushrooms, whenever. Um, but we always went back to opioids. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of just turmoil for years. Um, but I stayed because the, 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 the drugs kept me trapped. Um, we ended up having another child. Uh, so now we're three. I have two of my own with her. She has three total, um, but I'm raising her daughter, right? Because her father, her her father doesn't want anything to do with her, really. So right. I, I I I have three kids as well. And um, in the middle of all this, we're still in our our we're hiding our pill addiction from everybody, even though our family is kind of knowing that we're you using. Guys are fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Right. How do you guys both work full time and you guys still, you know, you had inherited all this money, and yet you can't pay your rent. Right. Right. Or the lights are getting shut off or you guys can't afford Christmas presents or right. So it's, it's that kind of stuff. Like, and I remember being pissed off at like her sisters for bringing over Christmas presents for my children. Um, Cause how dare they give my children Christmas presents? That's my fucking job. Right. But I wasn't doing that. Right. So that's like my pride and my ego is like, how, you know, how dare they do that? and make me look bad. Right. So I built like this resentment towards like her family because they were looking out for my children and putting the interest of my children before everybody else's. But I still had that resentment. Like that's my children. Leave them alone. I, they are just fine and I will take care of them. Well, um, I, I have to say that my kids wouldn't have eaten unless it was, um, if it wasn't for the state of Wisconsin, um, giving out um, EBT benefits, my, my children wouldn't have eaten, um, you know. Uh, so in the middle of all this opioid addiction, I, uh, I can't really hold a job um, in and out, in and out, just different multiple jobs here and there. I'm cooking a lot because they don't require a drug test. You can still get high while you're cooking. It's not a big deal. Anybody can cook. Um, Right. So my addiction is just in a, in a spot where 
it's so dark, but I couldn't stop doing it. You know, and the guy I'm getting pills from everybody everywhere. Um, my main pill guy was literally, we shared a driveway of another duplex and the duplex across the driveway was where we were getting the majority of our pills. So we didn't even have to go far to right. get our pill. Um, you know, and I remember we were at first we were, we were just like popping the pills, right. We were swallowing them um, until our neighbor tells us, how do you guys do them? Do you pop them or do you snort them? I don't, we just eat them. They're like, dude, if you, if you crush them up and snort them, it hits you way harder and it's way better. So we start doing that. And I'm going to tell you, man. Mm. Uh, yeah. No more time well, release. <laughs> exactly, man. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and we can skip over all the, the war stories basically and progress into a disease where, um, we're just about to be evicted and we can no longer afford a two person a day pill habit because now, you know, uh, uh, a 15 or a, th a 30 milligram Percocet is anywhere from, you know, 20 to $40, depending on where you get it from, you know, and you can't afford that when you barely have any income as it is. Right. Um, but that didn't make us stop. Um, but by the time that was all said and done, I, I needed about, um, 150 milligrams of, of oxycodone a day, just to function, Jason, mm -hmm. it, it was, it was really, really bad, man. And, uh, but the drug addict in me decided that, well, I'm working at a, at a little restaurant in Milwaukee and I was getting pills from, um, one of the waitresses and, uh, she tells me that, well, I can't get any more pills because uh, I, I I got cut off or something. She's like, but I can get you heroin. Mm. And I said, well, I don't really want to do heroin because at least when I do a Percocet, I know how high I'm going to get right with each hit. I don't know how high I'm going to get on heroin. So I was scared, you know, the horror stories. And, right. and to be honest, like when you say you did heroin, people think you had to shoot up heroin. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I thought the same thing and you don't have to shoot heroin. Right. Um, I started snorting heroin um, not too long after she introduced it to me. And it's funny, I got my first bag for free. Um, but I remember driving around with, you know, no license, expired tabs, no insurance, you know, um, I remember getting pulled over and throwing two, two small bags of heroin in a garbage bag that I had in my car. And, uh, my car got towed that night. Um, but what was funny is, uh, I'm standing on the side of the road and in my hand, I have a Walmart bag stuffed full of garbage and the cop never even questioned it. Like you could tell it was garbage, but I took this bag because I threw two little 20 bags of heroin in there and I'm not going to go without my dope. Right. Um, so I ended up getting a ride home from the tow truck, man. And, uh, I dump out, I remember dumping out this, uh, garbage bag in the middle of my living room and siphoning through all the garbage to find these two 20 bags of dope. And I remember telling my kid's mom, like, yeah, well, we don't have a car anymore, but at least we're going to be uh partying tonight, you know? Yeah. Um, and that, that's where my, my priorities, my, right. My priorities and my, my disease told me that your life is falling apart, but as long as you have this substance right here, Everything's everything is okay. Right. right. And I lived for that next. And it's so fucking true, man. Yeah. You live for the next fix, man. I, and, and, uh, I, I don't know how to describe it other than 
I, I live to use and use to live. Like right. that's what I did for a long time. Right. Um, so we're about to be evicted. Um, I managed to end up getting, so in, in the middle of all this, I ended up having uh, a job where I'm working for Airmark Correctional Services at the jail, cooking food for the inmates, selling pills to my coworkers, right? Going into work high every day at a jail. And then at night, I'm working at Walmart um, as like uh, in the produce department to kind of make extra money. Um, so I'm working, you know, three months straight. I don't have a single day off um, from 7 a.m. to 9, 10 o'clock at night. I'm working every single day. One car. So she's she doesn't work. So she's taking me to and from loading my kids up in the car, coming to get me from one job, taking me to another one. And I'm doing this. And uh, finally, I have a day off. And uh, I just wanted to be high, play some video games and, and chill. Um, but that wasn't enough for her. Uh, she, she wanted me to be a father to my children because I had been neglecting them for, for, you know, the, over the course of the three months, well, a lot longer than that. But when I wasn't home to even like see them get up in the morning or, or, or put them to bed at night, um, she wanted me to spend just one day, the one day I had off with my children. And I was too selfish that I wanted to spend it. What I wanted to do, getting high and playing video games, because that's what I want to fucking do. Right. And you Um, earned it. Right. I earned it because I've been working all these fucking hours, right. To provide for my family, to, to pay the bills and do this and do that. And that was all bullshit. Cause I wasn't. And how dare, and how dare you fucking try to deny me that. Right. Right. Exactly. My pride up because I know, I, yeah, I know what you're talking about and I've been there. uh, And I, you know, similar different stories, but similar to right. Just fucking. And these are things that, you know, down the road, I I carried a lot of shame about, especially early recovery. You know, when I realized what I did, what I had done or how, what my behavior was like, how I was treating, you know, my ex-wife or whatever. And I'd be like, man, you know, that's hard pills to swallow. Right. When you're first starting to recover. It is, man. I'm telling you, it is all that shame and guilt that, that you carry in the first few months. I, I had to get rid of all that and I'm glad I did, you know? Um, but I remember uh, that started what, what turned out to be a, a, a very long, bad day. Um, and, and Jason, typically I don't talk about this part of my life because I had made amends. Um, I've told my story a handful of times. I don't think I've ever really went into detail, but uh, I told myself that I'm going to go into detail just to lay it all out there. Um, to kind of paint a picture of the, the kind of person that I was. Um, so that, that day, um, is very vivid in my, my memory. Um, I remember her walking in and snatching up the PlayStation back then it, you know, it was a PS3 because, uh, or a PS4, I think maybe even anyway, she took the PlayStation, yanked it off the TV and, uh, started marching, uh, towards the front, the, the, the back door that led out into the driveway where everybody was out, all the neighbors and the kids, and uh, I chased her down, grabbed a hold of her, and I stopped her from going outside. So that was my first mistake, right? And I justified it because I already knew she was going to take that fucker out there and smash it in the, in the, in the driveway, and I wasn't going to have it, right? And that's my shit. You're not going to break my stuff, right? Right. Um, 
So I end up getting that back with some words and some tugging and pulling and pushing and shouting and hollering. And I end up getting that back. And then we get to yelling and cussing at each other through the door. And uh, uh, as I swung the door open, I remember saying some words to her. She said some words to me back. And now this is the part that I don't really know how it transpired, but I do know that it was probably me who started with either picking up the closest thing to me and throwing it in her direction, trying to hit her or vice versa. But I do remember an ashtray come flying out from the outside into me. Um, and that pissed me off. Uh, I remember it came in unglued and coming out to the common area right outside where we had a picnic table. And uh, I remember cussing at her, um, her telling me that I'm a absent father. Um, and that really pissed me off because I felt like I wasn't an absent father because I was working two jobs. Right. Um, again, my pride and ego got in the way. Right. And, and she was right. I was an absent father, but I don't, I think she didn't say it in or in any other way, but to kind of get me going and kind of get under my skin. Exactly. And, um, you know, and, and, and the next moment I, uh, after she told me I was an absent father and good for nothing, I spit on her, um, and I'm going to tell you that that's probably the most vile thing, disrespectful thing you can do to somebody right. is spit on. Yep. Um, that's, that's what, that's what I learned where I come from. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's right. Like right up there. That's one of the worst um, things. So that kind of set her off. Um, I remember some more things getting thrown, swung, um, altercation happening out in the view of all the neighbors and the kids, you know, we're shouting and hollering. So we're causing chaos. Um, and I remember her trying to call, um, nine one one. Um, and at the time our driveway was like, um, class five gravel. Right. So it wasn't really, um, it wasn't pavement at all. So it was real loose gravel. And, uh, I remember her being in the middle of the, the driveway and thinking like, if she calls the cops because of where I work, I have a security clearance. If I get in trouble, I'm going to lose my job and, and I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. Right. That's what's going through my head. That's what my disease is telling me in my own voice. Right. This is going to happen to you. if She calls the cops. Right. Cause my disease is cunning, baffling and powerful. It talks to me in my own voice right. and tells me things that aren't true. Um, so I walk over to her and I snatch the phone out of her hand. And uh, by in doing that, she kind of spins around and loses her balance and falls to the ground. Um, well, anyways, either before or after this happened, we end up inside and um, she gets to yelling and hollering and cussing. Um, and I end up choking her. Uh, right. Um Again, these are all things that I'm not very proud of, and it's taken a lot for me to even say all this um, right. because I've, I've made those amends with her about this. So it's not like I'm ashamed of all that. I don't carry it around, but it hasn't really had to been a part of my story. Um, right. Well, it, it, it is, but it's not something that I'm, I'm, I'm proud to talk about. But again, with the platform that I'm on, if I can, you know, reach that one person that kind of went through a similar situation and know that you can come out on the other side better. Right. And that's why. Um, well, and so I'll, tell you, I'll tell you right now, dude, it's, it's, um, we are not defined by 
the mistakes that we made. We right. are not, um, and you know, we, we weren't ourselves when these things happened, you know, you're essentially a shell running around and the thing behind the wheel is, you know, your substance basically. Um, right. And, and then on top of that, you know, it's just, it's it like, it is something that can help other people identify that like, look, you know, and, and I mean, you, it isn't like you're telling account after account about these kinds of incidents either. You know, this is right. like an isolated incident yep. where shit got way out of control. Yes. <laughs> you lost complete control. Yes. And, and uh, you just did some crazy shit, you know? And right. I think it's beautiful that, you know, people know can know that like at the end of the day, you know, you've, you've, you've done work to heal that part of yourself and you mended that fence and that you made them amends. So, right. And, and I, I'm not, and I'm saying all this because when we get into like what it's been like now, um, there's a lot that like I learned from this incident right here. Um, right. you know, so it goes on for some more time. I don't really know how long, um, anyway, the cops end up showing up. Um, yeah, I Most, would imagine somebody in the right, neighborhood. A, right, so they show up without any sirens on, right? And it's a swarm of them, probably four or five. Um, and I remember getting cuffed and put in the back of the cop car, right? Um, get to the station. You know, I'm sitting in the holding cell for, I don't know, it felt like an eternity before the cop actually talked to me. Um, it probably wasn't that long, maybe a half hour, hour. I don't know. But um, I remember... Uh, the cop talking to me and telling me my charges. Uh, I was charged with one misdemeanor and three felony counts. Um, felony strangulation, uh, felony kidnapping, and uh, impeding 911 services, which is also a felony. Yep, snatching uh, that phone out of her hand. Yep, and then not allowing her to leave the house. Um, that's, that's kidnapping. And by choking her, right? as considered strangulation and they're all felonies. Um, right. And then I get a misdemeanor disorderly conduct because we were arguing out in the driveway. Right. Well, here's where it gets funny because yes, I did all those things by me just telling you, I did all these things. However, my disease didn't allow me to tell on myself because y'all I'm a criminal and I have criminal thinking. Right. And it's my word against hers at this point. Yeah. Because all that stuff that happened, the besides um, taking the phone, it's well, at the end of the day, it's my word against hers and her neighbor friend and never showed up to court. Right. But I didn't admit to any of this stuff when this cop is telling me, because I know when a cop is asking you certain questions, they want you to incriminate yourself. I've been around. I know how to play the system. I know how to talk to a cop to not incriminate myself. Right. Right. So the only thing I admitted to was having an argument with her in the parking lot. Right. And in, in, in view of neighbors. So that's they. long story short, I only ended up getting charged. I had a Danko on me. Right. And um, I end up violating that Danko and getting arrested. Right. In the middle of all this. But uh, um, I they only charged me with uh, with um, a misdemeanor, uh, the disorderly conduct. And my pro public pretender told me that that's the worst statute written because they can charge you with disorderly conduct for every anything. 
Um, and, yeah. and, um, you it's know, pretty, and, it's very broad. Right. And so, um, he said, basically, because you admitted that you had an argument in public, that's considered disorderly conduct. However, the judge didn't buy that. I, that my statement that I didn't do any of those things. Um, the judge knew that I had probably did everything that, um, my kid's mom had, had, uh, accused me of doing. Uh, so she gives me 18 months or she gives me a, a 90 day stayed sentence, uh, 18 months of, of probation. Um, uh, you know, I had to get employment. I had to, um, no contact order. Um, I was not allowed to see my kids for this time, but uh, I had nowhere else to go. So I ended up back at the house. Right. And um, that was all good until I pissed her off and she called my probation officer and I get a, a warrant issued for my arrest. You know, I remember getting arrested and going to jail for five days um, on a PO hold and I'm getting out anyway. That just it goes on and on and on. And, and shortly after that time, we get evicted. Uh, we've been in that residence for five years. Uh, we get evicted. We're kind of homeless. So now at this point, you know, we have uh, we have the our, our daughter and our two boys. Um, and now we're kind of homeless. We're kind of bouncing around on couches. We end up getting into another townhouse and another just a few miles down the road. Um, we end up moving in there on a promise of, we didn't have all the money, but on a promise that um, once taxes came back, we would pay her whatever. Um, long story short, we ended up staying there for about six months um, rent free. Uh, most of the time in the, we didn't have lights on or, you know, um, our heroin habit had really taken a hold. Um, yeah, we were doing a lot of heroin, um, to the point where we were donating plasma twice a week just to, and I was literally setting up. Um, so the side of town that we had to go in Milwaukee was the same side of town that we would get our heroin or our crack at, right? Cause at this time now I had found out that if you smoke some crack while you do some heroin, it's a whole nother rush. So I was really liking that. Um, so we were donating plasma and I'm setting up the deal to go get heroin as soon as we get paid for our plasma. Um, so we uh, just, it, it gets to the point where we can't function anymore without any dope. Um, we end up getting evicted again. Uh, so now we're evicted twice in a calendar year. Uh, now everything we own is being pulled out of our house by the sink, by the, uh, the Milwaukee County Sheriff's department. Um, and they were going to take it to a storage facility. So I told them, well, I'm not going to be able to pay you guys to get it back. So I want you to put it all on the curb. So they put it all on the curb. The next day I get a U-Haul and I stuff any, everything that'll fit in the U-Haul. And now I'm living in a red roof in, um, working at the airport, making, like $9 an hour. Um, my kid's mom and kids are living in the hotel with us. Um, I remember somehow we got some money. I forget how we got a significant amount of money. Um, and we thought, well, we're going to go get an eight ball of crack and a couple ounces of heroin and we're going to sell it and make the money to get an apartment. Well, we end up doing all the crack and all the heroin in a matter of days. Um, so that kind of went out the window. I remember we'd smoke one more rock and be like, okay, only a couple more and we're done. Yeah. 
that didn't last very long. By the end of that night, we had smoked a ball of crack um, and probably over a gram of the heroin. Uh, this yeah, is the man. thing that trips me out. <clears throat> That's what makes it insidious is that we can, we can like mean it from the bottom of our hearts when we say, you know, with conviction that we're going to do something, you know, right. Grandiose. Um, and, it, but then we'll do the opposite. Like, and why, <laughs> why do we, when does that shift happen? When, why do we do that? I don't know, but I can relate so strongly to that dude. Like, um, thinking that I had these, I have, I would have these great ideas, you know, these bright ideas right. that I was going to turn shit around. I remember the last time I was selling dope that I was like, I'm literally, I'm just going to do it until I can get my car paid off and get an apartment or, or a place for me and my son. And I could have done those things like, a bunch of times, uh, th you know, I had the money to do it, to do all of that. Uh, I could have done that numerous times, both of those things. If I, you know, with the amount of money I was making, but I was throwing it all away, playing exactly. candy, man, being, being Santa Claus with the shit, uh, buying dumb shit, you know, um, just, it's like, what the hell, you know? Cause you think that you always have more time or that you can, Right. Yeah. You'll always come back and you never do. No. You know? Um, and then you beat yourself up about it and then how do you, you got to yeah. medicate? <laughs> right. No, that's, it's a, it's a vicious cycle. It's like, <laughs> yo, you feel like crap. You don't want to feel like that anymore. So you use again. Right. And then you use and you're like, man, I feel like crap because I'm using and you want to stop, but then you can't because then you're going to feel all those feelings that you don't want to feel. So that cycle just continues and it just continues and continues. Yeah. I remember uh, after that heroin and crack was gone, I remember I kind of broke down and she broke down too. And like, we didn't want to do this anymore. Um, I think it was sort of hopeless that I'm going to work. We haven't paid for the room for another night. Um, so she's going to have nowhere to go. Why I go to work all day. So that was my last day of work. Um, I remember calling my mom and asking my mom, you know, and throughout this whole time, my mom's been living on um, a fixed income yeah, uh, for years. And, and I was blessed with the gift of gab. So I was able to, so through my addiction, I wasn't like kicking in doors and robbing people. Right. My addiction was like giving them a sob story or like, yeah, I was stealing and shit, but I wasn't like strong arming people. You know what I mean? Like if right. you left something valuable laying around, that was mine. You know what I mean? Or like, if I saw a coin purse laying around, I'm going to go in it. You know, that was like how grimy I was. Right. Cause I was ashamed. Number one, that I was even like that, but I wasn't going to look you in the face while I was bold enough. Right. I wasn't bold enough to do that. Right. right. Um, and again, that, that was a justification to continue my addiction because I wasn't like all those other people. You know, I wasn't shooting heroin, so I'm not a bad, I'm a, I'm not a fiend like that. Cause I'm not shooting though. Right. right. I'm only snorting it. it so it's, it's, it, <laughs> there's justification of it all. Right? right. Um, you know, so I remember asking my mom, like, mom, 
we want a new start. I don't tell her that all this shit's been going on. I just say, Hey, you know, my mom's been trying to get me to come to Minnesota for years. And, uh, I finally break down and I use that. And I said, mom, we want to come and a fresh start. We have everything packed up. I didn't tell her how we had it packed up. Just, we had everything in a U-Haul and I need money to come up there and fresh start. So she wires me a hundred bucks to Walmart. And uh, like the good dope fiend that I am, I take uh, $40 of that and go to the dope house because I need some heroin to get out of town to get un, un, un sick. I guess I wasn't at this point, like a 20 bag isn't really going to do shit. It's just going to get me out of bed and into the car. I'm still going to feel get like you shit. well. It'll just right. get you well. Just enough to function. Not even barely, you know, so I can um, drive so, the fucking car. <laughs> right. So we jump in. I'm in my uh, little Jeep. She's in uh, the U-Haul. I got the kids and uh, we drive 350 miles up to Blaine, Minnesota, where my mom lived. Um, And uh, so for the next 10 days, I go through uh, opiate withdrawal. And I'm going to tell you, folks, if you've never gone through opiate withdrawal, don't. It's the worst. I, I can't. It's hard to describe unless you've been through it. You don't understand. I literally wanted to die. And when I went through those, that solid 10 days of straight, like literally laying on the floor for 10 days, um, I realized why people never get off opiates because they don't want to be sick. They would rather not go through withdrawal and get another one versus go through the withdrawal of the, the shaken, you know, like your bones hurt, you got, you're sweating, but you're freezing cold. You know, you, you're finally shitting. You don't shit for months on fucking opiates. And then you finally, you, you can't, you're it, it's, it's brutal, dude. It's just straight brutal. Yeah. Um, so after about two weeks, I start to feel like I can do something. Um, not to mention this U-Haul is long. It's weeks overdue. Um, we did, we rented it, not telling them we were leaving state. Um, so now we're in a whole nother state with a U-Haul that's long overdue. We probably have a felony warrant out for it. Anyway, we get all our stuff in a storage locker and we turn this thing in. We kind of just drop it off at night and throw the keys in the, in the box and go about our day. Um, <laughs> you know, and so we're living with my mom in a trailer. So we got, you know, my mom, um, me, my kid's mom and three children. And, uh, so I had experience working at Denny's. So I ended up going into Denny's, getting a, a job working as the, um, I think it was second shift at the time. And, uh, she gets a job waiting tables. Well, when you give, so up here, the, the wages are a lot different. Um, just to paint a little picture, a waitress down in Milwaukee for waiting tables gets two thirty three an hour plus tips up here. They get nine fifty an hour. This was you know, some a few years back, 2013, 2014, she was making 950 an hour plus tips. So you give a couple of dope fiends that kind of money, um, you know, and she's making, you know, a hundred bucks cash a day. Um, so, and we're really trying to not live bad. However, we thought that we could drink and smoke pot because we didn't have an issue with that. Right. So I wasn't really sober. I just got off the opiates. We both did. Um, but we start to feel like we're getting somewhere. We're starting to save up some money. So we're like, Oh, well let's celebrate. You know, we can get a bottle. We'll drink at home. We won't go to the bar. Right. We'll, we'll drink at home. We'll put the kids to bed and we'll, we'll have some drinks. Well, then the fighting starts because we're both inebriated. Right. Um, my mom can't stand us in the house anymore because we're drunk all the time and we're fucking fighting all the time. Uh, 
So anyway, we end up getting an apartment, um, but we start taking Adderalls again, right? And I hadn't touched amphetamines since I was, you know, early 2000s when I went to Job Corps. I hadn't touched amphetamine that whole time, um, right. 12 years or so. Um, and but after all the shit you went through because of the opiates, that's amphetamines, that the stuff you went through with that don't even seem like a big deal anymore. Right. It's such right. a distant memory. Exactly. That it's like that shit was nothing is nowhere near even comparing right. to as bad right. as this other shit guy. I hadn't lost as much on amphetamines as I did on opiates. So well, I felt just like forgot. You just forgot right. that you were right. terrified so, that this shit was going to destroy your mind. Right. Uh, so I end up uh, working with a cook who um, was selling me Adderall. But the thing is, is he liked Adderalls more than we did. So he was, you know, eating his prescription constantly. Well, long, I don't know how it came about, but anyways, he ends up getting some meth. And now my kid's mom had never smoked meth in her life, never been around it, never even had an opportunity to. Um, so when I brought that home for the first time, um, she wasn't opposed to it. She was scared to do it. She'd never done it. So like the good dolphin that I am, I, I show her how to twist a bubble. Um, and now we're off to the races again, man. We had just gotten our apartment, you know, life is starting to look good. And here comes methamphetamine, you know, like, Hey, here I am again, try this shit. Um, and within a few months, we're getting evicted again, but this time by the Anoka County Sheriff. Uh, so now I've been evicted three times in two states in about two years. Um, but again, I still didn't have a problem. So we ended up moving back in with my mom. Um, it wasn't long after that, that we couldn't really stand each other. She was done. She wanted to get sober. That's the reason we came up here. It didn't work out. You know, she's missing home. She's homesick. Um, so me and her are fighting a lot. Um, and of course my mom's going to take my side every time because I'm her kid. She's not. So in any fight we had my mom, it was sort of me and my mom against her. Right. So she always felt like she didn't have anybody but me. And now I've turned my back on her. So what is she staying here for? Um, and the last night that she was in Minnesota, um, I remember telling her that she's not welcome at my mom's house. And it was a July evening. I know it was just humid and hot. Um, and the van that we had didn't have AC. And I remember telling her that she wasn't allowed here. And if she was here, my mother showed up that she was going to have her trespass from the property. So she ends up at the Walmart in Blaine. Um, and I didn't realize she was talking to her sister from Milwaukee and setting up um, transportation to come up here and help move her back. Uh, and I remember she spent that night in the van with three children and no air conditioning in the middle of July. Mm. Um, you know, and I had just found out that she was pregnant again. So she's about three months pregnant, two months pregnant um, with our fourth child. Um, and I, I slept in the air conditioning while she slept in a van with the children and no air conditioning in the middle of July. Um, but again, I didn't feel bad about that. Right. She deserves right. that. Yeah. Um, but then I get, I remember getting woken up by the Anoka County Sheriff. Um, she had called them and I look outside and there's a U-Haul sitting out in front of my mom's house and uh, the sheriff's there just to keep the peace um, to allow her to get her stuff. She's leaving with my children. 
Um, and of course the crocodile tears start flowing, right? Because I had no emotion. So then they're, they're fake tears, right? Um, so I, I get to talk to my kids a little bit and I said some pretty vile things as she's leaving and uh, she takes off and, and goes back to Milwaukee. So I spend the next uh, year or so, year and a handful of months getting high again, blaming her for taking my children and running away. So this is um, flash forward to uh, September of 2017, right? Um, a lot of shit happened. I kind of glissed over it because I feel like that's that part of the story doesn't isn't really. The point is, is I picked up again up here and it wasn't a fresh start. And I realized that I can't drink or do drugs responsibly at all. Right. Um, it, tears, <laughs> it tears my life apart. <laughs> Sorry. So, I can laugh because I yeah. I can relate cuz dude, you know, it's that it's that textbook like uh you know, oh that shit got out of hand. So I got to put that down, but I can do this over here like right. I was I spent my entire life, dude, uh giving up one crutch for another. Yep. One and back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, as much as I had conviction that like alcohol was not my friend, man, like I could go six months to a year without touching the shit and just right. being a pothead or doing a little bit of, you know, right. You know, some trip or whatever here and there. And next thing you know, uh, that euphoric recall got me every time, you know, I eventually thought that it wasn't a problem. And that I was just overreacting to it before or something. Yeah. So I would yep. just go back and forth and right. always a problem. Then yeah. When you finally get to that point where you're just like, I can't do any of this shit responsibly. It's all fucked. Right. <laughs> right. It's exactly it. It's a hard moment. Well, so she's, she's sober now. Um, she actually went back, went in, got into a treatment center in, in Milwaukee for her and the kids got her and the kids some help. Right. Um, that's wonderful news. Right. And, and, but I couldn't see it as wonderful. Right. I was still like shaming her for leaving me and, and, you know, like the miracles that she's experiencing in recovery, I'm shitting on those every time she's trying to tell me about some good stuff happening. Um, I'm shitting on all that. Right. Um, because I was still unhappy. I was still lost. I didn't want to be better. I wanted to get high, but I didn't want all the consequences that came with getting high. I just wanted to be able to get high and function like a normal person. Right. Right. Um, so I end up, so now it's September of 2017, you know, she left, um, in about July of 2016. So I spent from that point up until September, the end of September up to October 2nd when I went to treatment. But um, that month before I went to treatment, um, she completely cut ties with me. And I remember that pissed me off to no end um, because how dare she take away the only little bit of communication I have with my children. She took that away from me again. Right. Um, but what I, know now being in recovery is she had to do what was best for her and the children. And you have to cut toxic people out of your life, no matter how close they are to you, if you want to recover, Amen. right? You can't keep those people in your life and, and expect to have a good recovery. It just doesn't work like that. And I know that personally now, but then I, I didn't know it because I hadn't even 
found any type of recovery whatsoever, nor could I even admit I had a problem. I think I admitted I had a problem and it was out of anger. I said, you know, I'm a fucking drug addict. Are you happy now? Right? Like that was me admitting that I was an addict only because I was pissed off that you were calling me on my bullshit. Um, But, uh, so she cuts me off. She stops communicating with me via phone, text, Facebook messenger, wouldn't respond to nothing. She's reading my messages, but she's not responding. Um, and for about two weeks there, I was, I was blowing her shit up. (laughs) Right. My life was falling apart more and more and more. And I'm realizing that now I'm 32 years old. I have four kids that I can't even talk to. I'm living with my mother again, getting drove back and forth to work by my mother. I have nothing other than a laptop, a PlayStation and a cell phone. Right. And a, and a, and a meth pipe. I'm smoking meth in the dark in her living room at 32 years old. Right. Um, this is my life. I'm working and I'm coming home and getting high and I'm getting high while I'm at work and I'm coming home and I'm getting high. And then I'm, I, I can't take a shower without getting high. I can't go to the bathroom without getting high. I can't go have a cigarette without getting high. Like that's my life. I can't do anything without getting high. Yeah. Um, but I'm not enjoying any of it. I'm not even enjoying getting high anymore. Right. I'm just doing it because I don't know what else to do. I, I've gotten my high my whole life that getting high is normal to me. I'm not enjoying it. I'm not even getting high at this point, Jason, like at the end of it all, right. I wasn't even high anymore. I'm, I'm literally falling asleep with the, with the bong of, of dope in my hand, like yeah. waking up hours later and the dope's ruined. And what do I do? I, I load another one, get pissed off that I ruined the dope and I just load another one. Yeah. You know, I'm buying bags of dope when I don't need to, I already have a bunch of dope, but I'm just doing that because I don't know what else to do with my money. I, I don't have any bills to pay. Right. But, uh, she's not talking to me. So for about two weeks there, I'm, I'm losing my fucking mind. And, and it's kind of a screenshot of what my life's going to look like if I continued on this path. So, um, sometime in the middle of September, I decide that I'm going to go to treatment. Um, so I finally get her on the phone and I told her, you know, I have some news for you. Uh, she was reserved. She, she didn't believe it. She thought I was joking. Um, or just telling her what she wanted to hear. So you would start talking again. Yes. So I could see my kids or talk to my kids. Right. Right. Um, but she was happy that I had made that decision to actually go to treatment. Um, so I end up going to it, um, for the first time in my life, I go to Anoka County and get a rule 25 assessment done. And for the first time in my entire life, I was brutally honest with the amount of drugs I had done and how long I had done them. For the first time in my life, I admitted to another person besides the people I was getting high with how much and how long I had been doing drugs. Right. Um, And I can't say it was a freeing moment. I just knew that I didn't want to get high anymore, but I knew that if I wasn't honest, I wasn't going to get the help that I needed. Right. Right. And you know, you hear a lot of people how they went to umpteen treatments, right? And they're, they, they still haven't recovered, right? Um, by the time I was done, I had started when I was about 15, 16 years old, up until I was 32. So I had a 16-year career of drinking and drugging. And, and by that time, I was done. Um, I was ready to get better. Um, so I ended up going to an IOP with lodging, um, high intensity, uh, an eight-week program. Um, And that's when the miracle started to happen. Um, Again, I didn't see it. 
Um, but I'm grateful that I had the people I did in my life. Um, but again, I wanted to go to treatment and I was going to do it my way because my way works so well. But I was going <laughs> yeah. to continue to do it my way, right? I was, yeah, I was going to go to group, but I was going to do group how I wanted to, right? Right. Um, and it's funny how like every time I was that type of person that every story that was told, I had a better story. One right? up. <laughs> One up every time. But, but the, the funny part about it is, is my stories were somebody else's stories that I was telling, right? So half the stories I was telling weren't even my stories. They were just somebody else's story or I was there when my buddy went through that. So now I'm telling this story as it's my own, right? Um, because I was still trying to impress. I saw that ego. I saw that pride. Like, you know, I was trying to fit in with all these people that, you know, had all these stories. And, and uh, funny thing is, is, staff saw through that facade and through all that bullshit um, because they, they knew my background. They knew where I came from. They had everything laid out in a file. Um, yeah, Cause you were brutally honest with them. <laughs> right. So I didn't, and, and, you know, I didn't have a criminal record at this time. Like I had a few things on my record, but nothing major, no felonies, you know? So really I'm, I'm basically I'm fronting to, to try to be cool. Right. Um, but something was said to me, um, by the director and he became, he's still, I haven't talked to him quite lately, but he's, he was very important person in my life early on. Um, he said something to me that really pissed me off. And he said, dude, you got to get out of your own way, man. And uh, Jason, you can ask me why that pissed me off. And I couldn't tell you, I just know it did. I think it was because my pride was hurt a little bit because he saw through the, the smoke screen that I was I was putting up, you know, that I was trying to be this person that I'm not. And I was like being more difficult than I had to be, whatever. Um, but uh, I got humbled in treatment. And for the first time in my life, I got out of my own way. Um, my counselor told me, dude, you got to shut your mouth and open your ears. And uh, I started doing that. I wasn't, the f I, I, I didn't grab the readings right away in the beginning of group. And I let other people do that. Um, I let other people share. I didn't share every single every single session. Right. Um, and when I started doing that, I started learning a lot. I started paying attention and I started focusing. Um, so in eight weeks I started getting a little bit of recovery in me. And I remember day two of treatment bawling my eyes out. Cause for the first time I'm sitting in an AA meeting and, uh, I didn't even know what I was doing. I couldn't put two words together, but I had 48 hours and, uh, somebody gave me a 24 hour medallion and, uh, that was cool, man. It was a really cool experience looking back on it. Um, but I, I went to two meetings a week because that was part of the requirements. So they took us to the two meetings a week. Um, again, I was still sharing kind of surface level stuff because I hadn't been around much, but I'm still learning a lot out of going to meetings and uh, being around a lot of recovery. Um, and then I ended up doing three months of outpatient in a sober house for the same program. So I get about five months of, of recovery. Uh, so I'm starting to get my life back together. You know, I'm working full time. I'm working at Target, um, unloading the, the trucks early in the morning, going to group at night um, for the next three months. So I'm able to save some cash. Um, I end up purchasing a vehicle right right as soon as I get out of treatment. And um, funny part is, is now that I'm mobile and I have money in my pocket, what do I do? Right? Because like, before when I was mobile, even when I wasn't mobile, I had money in my pocket. All I do was buy dope. Right. So now it's like, well, I have all this money now. I, I don't want to buy dope anymore. I mean, I could, but I don't want to. So I'm buying just 
dumb shit, right? Stuff that I don't even need just because I have the money to do it. Um, so I end up, uh, you know, um, moving back to Blaine where I was getting high. And I want to tell those people that, you know, yeah, you got to change the people, places and things, but you can go back to the area that you used to get high in with a different mindset and you can recover in the same area that you used to get high in. Yep. Um, you know, I cut out everybody out of my life um, that I used with. I got a new, new phone or I had the same phone number, but I cut out all those people. I deleted all their contacts. Um, I, everybody that I knew, I told them I was going to treatment. So they kind of respected me and they didn't try to hit me up after that. So that was good for me. Um, but I was about seven months sober and uh, I thought I was doing really, really well. Um, you know, I was going to hella meetings. You know, when I first started going to meetings, Jason, I went to two a week because that's what they told me. So I was going on Friday afternoon and Sunday evening for the week. Um, and I went to meetings because they told me I had to, but I kept going because I, I wanted to. Right. Right. And, and, and that's the miracle of it all is like, you get, I kept, you get thirsty. Yeah. You want more. You- right. But I was that guy that would show up right as the meeting started or a few minutes in and I would sit in the back of the room and I would leave right as they ended the meeting. Right. I would take off. Wouldn't talk to nobody. Wouldn't, you know, I, I was, I don't even want to be here. I'm only doing this because I don't want to get kicked out of the sober house. I, I need somewhere to stay. Right. Um, so anyway, I'm seven months clean. I go back to Blaine. Um, and it just happens to be the week prior to a, a huge AA convention that they have every um, Memorial day weekend. Um, except for this year, <laughs> except for this year. Right. Um, and last year, but, uh, I didn't, I had heard about the thing, but I'd never been there. And, you know, and so like I was planning on going, but I find out that my mom has uh, breast cancer stage three C breast cancer. Um, and first thought wrong, dude. Um, the first like 10 thoughts were wrong because I wanted to get high. That was my first thought because I hadn't really worked a program. I'd gone to some meetings, right. But I hadn't really worked a program. Um, I was just kind of sober, clean, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, but I wanted to get high so bad because now I'm feeling for the first time, raw emotion, sober. Right. 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 My mom has stage three C breast cancer. And I didn't even know that the numbers had letters behind them, but apparently three C is the worst that you can get with, with it being unoperable. Um, you know, it goes three C to four. Um, so I decided to do two things instead of getting high. I called the director of the program that I was at who he didn't answer. Cause why would, why would he? Right. Right. Um, and this is just me being ignorant about it. And he was probably busy. So then I call my kid's mom because she's like the only other person I know that, that knows me, knows my mom and is in recovery and is a positive person in my life at this point. Um, and I broke down and I just wept. I just sobbed man. um, and I end up at Gopher state that weekend and I, uh, end up running into, um, the director and I had a heart to heart with him. Uh, and that was really cool. He, he put a whole different perspective on it that I need to be here for her while she fights for her life because I already fought for mine and I'm gaining it back. So right. me going and getting high, isn't going to do anybody any good. Um, and in the course of all this, I end up running into one guy that I used to get high with on a regular basis that we both know. Um, 
And uh, I remember him telling him I'm on my way to a meeting, right? And uh, he says, oh, I'm leaving town for the weekend. I'm going with my family. I'll hit you up on Monday. And I had gone to enough meetings to know that when somebody blows you off like that, typically they don't want to go to a meeting. But he hit me up that Monday and we've been going to meetings ever since. And I like to, you know, I like to know that I was part of his recovery. And I, I kind of showed him what it was like because I was recovering out loud. I was proud of my recovery. And, uh, you know, he's he's hit some good milestones and he's still sober. And he's the only guy I talked to from the other side of the tracks today because he's working a program of recovery. Right. Um, but That's I had awesome. that buddy, you know, I had a meeting buddy that we went to a lot of meetings together. And so after Gopher State, I ended up going to a whole bunch of meetings. I was probably going to five, six meetings a week, man. I, I couldn't get enough um, because that's what they told me to do. You got to go to meetings, man. They told me three things. I said, go to meetings, get a sponsor and work your steps. That's it. That's all they told me I had to do. Keep coming back. And, and, and so I end up getting my hair cut and uh, because I'm talking about how I'm new into recovery and I'm looking for a meeting somebody points out somebody else that we also have in common that we know um, uh, she was cutting my hair or she wasn't cutting my hair at the time, but she had mentioned that um, the Alano up the road has a great young people's meeting on Friday night. And it just happened to be Friday. So I went and checked that out and uh, I met some amazing, amazing cats there. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I, for the first time I was actually enjoying being clean um, because I was actually enjoying myself without the use of drugs and alcohol. Um, so I was going to a lot of meetings. I still, you know, I, I had tried a couple of sponsors, but they weren't sponsoring how I wanted them to. So I, I got rid of them. <laughs> right. And then I thought, well, I'll be my own sponsor. Cause I know exactly what I'm doing. Well, that really didn't work out too well. Right. Um, so I'd reached out to a couple people and I said, Hey, you know, you know, a lot of males in this program. Can you kind of point me in the direction of somebody? And so she gave me somebody's number. I reached out to him. We set up a meet and uh, we kind of went to a couple meetings together, kind of felt each other out. And I remember talking to him and I said, look, dude, I said, don't expect me to share my feelings with you. Right. Like I'm a grown man. You're a grown man. That's just fucking weird. I'm not going to like, <laughs> I, they told me to get a sponsor and work some steps, but don't expect me to get all mushy. Right. Um, <laughs> within a few months, I'm, I'm sobbing in a restaurant right over some shit I, I can't even remember what it was i was it was about now but i just remember um him being there every step of the way and i started working some steps and then i get to that four step and let me tell you man whoo that was a motherfucker because now for the first time i'm looking at me right i'm pulling back the layers of the onion and i'm looking at me and what wes really is you know, and I say this a lot, I said, you know, when I was drinking and drugging, I would, I was an asshole, right? Um, and I used to blame it on the drugs and alcohol because, because I'm under the influence. So that's why I'm an asshole. But when you take all that away and you're still an asshole, there's a problem. <laughs> when you're treating people, when you're still, when you're treating people like garbage, right? When you're, <laughs> when you're judging everybody. Um, and you're sober or you're clean, there's a problem. Right. Right. Um, well, that's the thing though, as, as hard as the fourth step is, I mean, I'm not going to say it's not hard. It's hard. And most right. people 
tuck tail and run, but you know, if you can get everything that you can get on paper, uh, you know, that fifth step is where, uh, you, that's the, the your sponsor's job, man, is to illuminate, uh, the shit for you. Cause you're still, when you're doing a fourth step, you're still doing it operating under your own understanding. You yep. have, you have yet to have somebody point out the hard nuggets of truth that you have to swallow and, Right. When you, when you do that and and then you can process it, that's when uh, the heart change, I think, starts to really take hold because you, you know, because now, you know, and, you know, right. before when you did your fourth step, you didn't really know you were just making a log, you know, you're fucking yep. chronologically making a log of all the shit that, that right. you needed to. But boy, it's it's some shit. uh it's some shit, Wes, when you get that. It uh, is. Dose. That's the, for me, that was the humility, man. I mean, I Amen. think I was humbled. I was humbled before that, but that was when I really got humbled because now I'm fully aware and everything in your being wants to reject that information at first, you know, and then when you accept it, it's like, now here we are and here I sit and this is who I am, who I was. And yeah makes you kind of want to throw up i don't know if you did but i did yes yes you know and i'm writing all this shit down and like so i'm not i don't like to write right but what i was doing is my sponsor said it's okay you don't have to write word for word every little detail write that the bullet points down of like what you struggle with right in your for in your inventory right so i'm writing all this down and then i i really laid it out in my fifth step um uh, one of the things that happened in my fifth step, well, the thing is, is like, I, I got, I would ask people like how they did their four step and people were scaring me because they're like, dude, I wrote pages of my four step. And I'm like, dude, I don't even want to write one page, let alone a book. <laughs> right. So like, but basically I wrote down, you know, all my fears and my resentments and my, um, my conduct to others. Right. I, I laid it all out. Um, so I identify as an addict, um, but I'm sponsored um, through the big book, right? Because my sponsor is an alcoholic. So I feel like I got kind of a taste of both. Um, but uh, when I did that fifth step, he broke it down, just like you were saying, in ways that I never thought possible, ways that kind of the perspective changed, right? Um, I remember one of the things in my resentment piece was my kid's mom, right? And about how she left me. She took my kids and left me. And I have a resentment over that, right? right. And he simply, after I laid out all the resentments and we started talking about it all, he said, did she leave or did you stay? Whoa. Right. Right? Because I had never thought that I stayed. And that's honest to God's truth. I could have gotten the vehicle and left with her and went back to Milwaukee, but I chose to stay regardless of the reason I gave, it was simply because I still wanted to get high. I wasn't done getting high. Right. So I stayed, she never left me. I stayed. Right. right. So it was those type of things. Like he's spinning them all the way around. So those resentments, all the powers removed from him. Once I did that fist step. Yeah. Right. Cause that was like, now for me, that was like for me, I, I, I was, I had this, such a victim mentality for so many years, Yes. Uh, especially regard, regarding, um, being estranged from my 
uh, first two kids. And I felt like I got played. I felt like I got, um, you know, like they power moved on me and shit. And because they didn't need me around and I couldn't afford to go to court and which was bullshit too, because I fucking afforded to fuel my habit for years. But, you know, it's, it's weird. The, the, you talked about a perspective, the perspective change, and that's what it says in the big book, you know, like these steps will bring about a psychic change that is sufficient enough to remove the obsession to drink or use. Right. That's, that's it. And that's what I have to, like, I didn't understand how people could say I'm recovered or I, I have recovered. Right. I, I have recovered from a hopeless state of mind. And that's what it's talking about. I no longer obsess about getting higher or drunk. Right. I don't obsess about that anymore. Do I have obsessive thoughts about other things? Sure. But I don't have to use over anything. Right. Right. Um, And that, that, that I know right there alone, if, as long as I don't use everything else will be fine. Right. The moment I pick up, nothing is going to be okay. Well, it's you know, all- we, we have a choice in the first one. After that, we lose all choice. Correct. And then I think the- about, you know, the, I think about the, uh, you know, the whole idea of that. If I, that if I do one, then it's like, I'm opening Pandora's box all over again. Yep. It, or what yep. does it say in the NA book? It says we release our addiction all over again. Over again. Yep. Absolutely. We do. Um, you know, and up to this point in, in my in my journey, I have yet to experience a relapse. Um, I hope I don't, um, but you know, I I, I don't know. Um, all I know is the gifts that I've been given in recovery in this short amount of time you now, coming up on four years, um, it's been a blessing. You know, my first year was my first year was a lot of trials and tribulations a lot of peaks and valleys as i like to call them right um you know if anything it raises more questions than it uh solves or puts to rest because now we're like learning how to adult and now am i what do i like right right (laughs) don't i like (laughs) like you know the highs are really good but the lows are really really bad yeah um you know, and then into year two, like I got to that first year and I was so geeked about it because like, holy shit, right? I'm nervous when I'm approaching that one year mark. I'm like freaking out, like internally. I'm like, oh my God, I'm about to be a year. What am I going to do? Right. And then I get to 366 days and it, it, it's just another day. Yeah. Right. It's a milestone. Don't get me wrong. And I was proud of it. But at the end of the day, it's just one more day in the journey. Right. Pre-medallion syndrome, man. Right. Right. And so like my first year was a lot of peaks and valleys. And then in my second year, I kind of, I kind of got into like a a groove. Right. And I start sponsoring men in the program and, um, you know, I start giving away what was so freely given to me. And it gives me like this new, you know, sense of, of recovery and just like empowerment, basically, you know, have you ever Um, taken somebody all the way through? I have, I have. So um, what? I, so take a minute to tell us what what yeah. that experience is like, because I'll tell you, bro. I've never, I have yet to ever have somebody stick it out and go through all yeah. twelve. So I've I sponsored, have, I've sponsored a lot of guys, but I've never had anybody do it all. So tell us what that's like. 
So I have my very first sponsee. Um, we've been doing the one, two, three shuffle for the last couple of years, right? We yeah. get on these highs, we collect a 30 day, a 60 day, and then we're right back off to the races, whatever. Anyway. So, um, I end up getting a, another sponsee who's around the same age, you know, um, 19 at the time, I think, um, he was working with another guy, but basically, um, he, the way he tells it to me is he was sponsored. He would call his sponsor and say, Hey, I want to do some work. And he would tell him what pages to read in the book. And then he got to his four step. He's like, all right, write some stuff down, write down your resentments and then we'll go over it. So there was really no like break open the book, start at the blank page, read through all the way, you know, get into step three, stop, go over that, get into step four, right? There was no breaking it down step by step. It was just kind of, okay, read on your own, do your four step, and then we'll go from there. So we never, he got to his four step, um, but I, I made him start over. So we read through the book, you know, we get into the four step. I said, it's good that you wrote your four step. We're not going to scrap it, but you're not, that's not what you're going to do. You're going to add to it. Right. Um, so he did his four step, um, did his fifth step. And I'm going to tell you being on the other side of a, of a four step is really fucking cool. It's so cool to like be that guy that you, somebody else trusts to tell their deepest, darkest secrets to. Right. right. That they're that comfortable with you that they can tell you. And now I am the guy like my sponsor was for me a year or so prior. Um, I'm able to give him a different perspective on it all. Right. right? So like he's starting to like you can see his shoulders kind of relax a little bit and like his smile coming on his face and like he's feeling good about his fist step. Right. Um he was a little nervous getting into the, to the uh, ninth step. Um, but like the big book says your eighth step, which your list was written in your fourth step. So if you're adding people to that eighth step, then you've missed something in your fourth step and you got to go backwards. Right. Exactly. So he, he got into those, um, the step nine and, you know, and I can only sponsor how I was sponsored. Right. So, I didn't make him do every uh, amends because if let's be honest here for a minute, if you make somebody do every single amends, they will never get past step nine. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so once he started making his amends, we, we covered that, you know, we had some conversations. He said he felt good about it. He was able to, you know, uh, basically get over the, the stuff that he was carrying along with like family, basically, and some exes and stuff. Um, again, he's 19, you know, so he's kind of young. So he didn't have a lot of the shit that like uh, me or other people went through. Right. Uh, he went through enough, but not like not a lot. So he didn't have a ton of stuff to do uh, outside of family. Um, but dude, my spiritual experience didn't even happen with him. And that's what's crazy about this program. My spiritual experience happened with, you know, my very first sponsee who, um, asked me to be their sponsor and started working some steps with somebody. Right. So for the first time in my life, I feel like I have purpose again. Right. Not even again, just in general. Like, I feel like I have purpose. This is what I was destined to do is to recover from a disease or, or I guess from a hopeless state of mind, because our disease is never really curable. Right. Um, but I feel like I was destined to, work with other men and show them that we can recover from this. Right. Um, show them a way out, man. And right. I, like I, when I was asking about it, I think I was kind of 
and maybe I just used the wrong wording, but I was kind of looking more for like just that, you know, to your point, like, you know, spiritually, like, what did that do for you? Like, what did that do for your recovery? Like personally, it, it, it made me feel like I wanted to give this fucking thing away to everybody that wanted it. Dude, yeah. I wanted to go out and like recruit people, but I know we can't. Right. Right. I know we that, but it like, dude, I'm telling you like that pink cloud that they talk about. I felt like I was on it again. When you finally take somebody through some steps, at least for me anyway, I felt like I wanted, I want to sponsor everybody. Right. Yeah. But I, cause I, I just, I don't have the time, right. you know, and I, and I don't know everything. And again, and that's, you know, in my first couple of years, I thought I had all the answers, right? But a lot of right. humbling along the way, I realized I had a lot of growing up to do. Right. You know, um, my first year wasn't anything like my second year. Um, my second year was uh, a lot milder, um, mostly because I had worked, you know, a program. I started working with other men. Um, I started doing a lot in recovery as far as like fellowship stuff, um, events, that kind of stuff um, growing, growing my, uh, my network of people, um, you know, and, and then into my third year, um, a lot had changed, you know, um, I'll tell you, Jason, I still have a problem with women. Um, more so like I chase women. Um, you know, now I'm in a relationship now where like, it's for the first time in my life, it's been healthy. Um, she's in recovery as well. Uh, I tried some relationships here and there and they just didn't work out. Um, but, uh, I never used over anything, right? They said, share about everything, use over nothing. Right. And that's it. Right. I, and, and I say all these little cliche sayings and, you know, we like kind of roll our eyes or we kind of chuckle about them, but they're so true. Right. Yeah, no, be- I used to. I used to roll my eyes at that shit. Right, right. But now I know, now I know, because they all have a deep personal significance to me in my life today. Right. Before, I was like, what the fuck does that even mean? You know, like, um, bro, you know, it's it's awesome. And it it is a truly, truly a process that will never be over. Um, We're we're always going to be works in progress, man. Amen. Um, You know, we're going a little long. Sorry, buddy. I, no, dude, you are totally fine. We, I love listening to you talk, and I know you love the sound of your own voice. So we're yeah, good. Sure. I mean, <laughs> hey, if you I got love it, this, I, I love mine too. <laughs> you no, know? right. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm, I, I, I guess at the end of the day, I'm just blessed. I'm, I'm grateful that I have recovery in my, in my, in my life today, and I won't, I won't change it for nothing. Right. And, and, you know, it speaks volumes that, you know, you started sponsoring guys and that's, that's where the purpose piece came in for you. And that's why the 12th step is part of the steps, right? Because we try to carry this message to others, you know, and, and we try to help them recover and we can't, we can't keep what we have without giving it away. We can't, uh, we can't sustain a long-term recovery if we're not helping others, you know, being of service. So that's like, 
paramount. And a lot of people think they can skip that, right? Like they'll do the step work, but then they'll uh, stop going to meetings because they think they're cured. Right. And, right. And it happens all the time. We see it all the time. People yeah. And, and it also talks about like um, practice these principles in all our affairs, right? The last part of the 12 step. Yeah. So like you can be one person at a meeting, but act like a completely different person outside the meeting. That's exactly what it's talking about. Like yeah. I, I try to be the same person day in and day out. I'm not, I'm not, I don't always meet that, but I only have to compete with myself at the end of the day. I don't have to compete with anybody else but me. Right. I'm better today than I was yesterday. I feel like a victory, you know? Amen. Yep. Exactly. It's a, it's a process. We got to give ourselves grace when we stumble and, uh, Yes, celebrate celebrate each little victory man because some t- someday you're going to be in feeling some type of way and you're going to have to draw from that you're going to have to yep. look back and find your gratitude and remember what you've accomplished and, and celebrate those victories again to carry you through a tough time amen um, it's huge i got these rapid fire questions that we close every yep. interview with you down okay. you ready freddie i'm ready Let's all right them. number one what does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? We think daily routines are like so important for, for people to sustain a healthy recovery. Um, you know, they've changed so much, but like lately it's been, you know, it's kind of like, I just wake up and I'm grateful that I'm, I have another day to do it over again. Right. And I just go about my day and I get ready and I am grateful that I, I get an opportunity to go to work. I'm grateful that I made it through another day completely sober. Um, I try to hit a meeting if, if I, if, if it works out where I can go to a meeting, um, you know, so to sit here and say that I wake up every day and I pray and I go through all these meditations and I read some daily reflections and stuff that doesn't happen. Right. right. Um, I, I guess basically at the end of the day, I'm, I, I, I look at the, everything I can be grateful for. I get to, instead of, I have to. Amen. Attitude of gratitude, man. Amen. It's huge. What book or piece of recovery literature has had the biggest impact on your recovery? Oh man. Um, there's really been two. So, um, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was huge for me. Um, and that's not minimizing any other literature and, um, the daily reflections, book um a lot of those were huge for me early on um they still are every time i read them there's something profound i hear in them hell yeah all right that's they're great pieces of literature for sure ones that i still use um what excuse me what is the best piece of advice that you received in your recovery um keep coming back it works we'll love you till you can love yourself yeah so true and they do don't they (laughs) yeah they sure do and that's why you reach out to the new people right like exactly because that's what somebody did for me they loved me when i didn't feel lovable when i wasn't lovable oh fuck yeah truth be told right (laughs) yes sir it's funny you know if the over five years into this thing now, I can talk to some of the people that were around when I was in the beginning. And at that time, I would have never guessed they were anything but happy to see me. They were always so warm, welcoming, kind. Uh, right. They always asked me right. how I was doing and invite me to stuff. And I thought they were like, they just loved me. But now they'll tell me flat out like that I was this arrogant, cocky, 
pissed off yep. person, you know, and, <laughs> and I'm like, wow, tell me what you, how you really felt, you know, but um, at the time that's not their job, right. To tell us that we, we got to right. love, we got to just love on them and make them feel welcome. So they keep coming back, you know, exactly. Yeah, dude. Um, what is the greatest challenge that you've had in your recovery? Oh man. Um, greatest challenge I've had in my recovery. Definitely. Not. How do I want to put this? Not um, working a sponsor's program, getting too invested in their recovery or their steps more than they are, right? Like only meeting them halfway, not going 70 30. Yeah. Amen. That is tough. It is. That's real tough. I struggled with that early on because, well, I think the real reason was because I had this fear of, you know, when I finally raised my hand to sponsor, people jumped at it because I never rose my hand and right. I kind of would turn my back and walk away when people would start talking about sponsorship or like Jason might be a good sponsor. And I would pretend I didn't hear it because I was afraid. Like, I think part of me felt like I would be responsible if they relapsed or God forbid right. died or something. Right. Um, or, or if I did it wrong and I like ruined their fucking life or something, <laughs> right, right. I felt like that, you know, and then, uh, really it was broke down to me, uh, by my sponsor that, you know, like a, you're not fucking God, right. And, like That's stop it. giving yourself so much credit. Cause you know, <laughs> cause you're not all powerful, man. And you right. can't ruin anybody's life. Guess what? They're going to, if their life gets ruined, it's because of their choices, their behavior, their consequences to right. their actions. And I'm like, right. Oh, okay. So, you know, I had to learn how to not own people's shit for sure. And, and, and then just, you know, to learn that you can't force them, right? Like if they're not ready, they're not ready. And you have to let it be what it is, man. And let them uh, have their own journey. Cause to your point, you know, you, you invest a lot of time and energy. And the next thing you know, you're like fucking trying to force feed them the shit or, yep. you know, or, or feel like crap, go back out. Well, and it's like the serenity prayer, you know, like give me the wisdom to, to know what what things can i not control because right. i yeah i thought that i could i guess and i i'm so glad that 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 season passed because that was tough that was really tough i swear yep real shit um okay what what song symbolizes your recovery oh man that's tough, dude. Uh, I don't know if I really have a song. You, I suppose you need an answer, don't you? Uh, I guess you could be the first guest to ever say you don't oh, have you're, a song. You're put it on me like that, huh? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, oh, man. We'll come back to that one. Okay. We'll come back to that one. What's the greatest success in your recovery? Uh, my up to this point, I would definitely say purchasing a vehicle with no cosigner 
it's 100% mine. I walked in, put in the work, walked into the dealership, was able to secure a loan with my name only and a small down payment. That's it. Right on, bro. That is amazing. Um, Did you think of a song yet? Um, I'm trying to look here. Sorry. No, you're totally fine. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that was going to be a question or I would have studied. Shut your mouth. What? Let's do this one. And then this is the last other question. So then you're going to have to have a song or we're going to have the the first no song having person (laughs) in the history of the whale podcast. The pressure's on. Uh, What is something that you haven't forgiven yourself or somebody else for? Um, you know, it's not really glaring. Um, but I think like the biggest thing was neglecting my children while I was using, because yeah. the one thing you can never get back is time. Right. Right. Um, have I let myself off the hook? Yes. Because I've put that down in a four step and I've worked a program. Right. But it's still like, I carry that with me. Like, you know, I'm human. So like I have emotion today and like, I know I can't do anything about it. Um, so I kind of have that like guilt still, like when I'm with my kids, um, I, I tend to buy them things that I don't need to buy them. Or if they call me and say, Hey dad, we, we want some money for this. I send them money for that. Right. It's sort of like, I, I spoil them. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just part of the guilt, you know, but I definitely think it's the, it's, the, the guilt of neglect really is what it boils down to. No, I can, I can relate to that. You know, I think about my children and uh, you know, it's, it's a thing that like, if anything recovery did help was that, you know, when I get to listen to stories such as yours uh, and so many others that I've heard where, you know, all this chaos in, in, the kids were there, you know, and, uh, you know, for once in my life, I actually felt kind of grateful that I wasn't in the picture, right? Like it, like it was better for them. And I'm sure it was. And, you know, at the same token, it's like for years, I raked myself over the coals for not being there. And I blamed everybody and everything other than myself for it. And, you know, I didn't really see my, my choices or, or you know <laughs> there's things that i missed i completely missed you know that opportunities that were there and and i squandered them because of my pride and in my ego and you know it was just it's it's been a whole thing coming to terms with a lot of that stuff um thinking about my youngest son he was around when i was uh selling meth and and all that in my last go around and and i remember seeing him at 2 years old uh he crept up on me upstairs he i thought he was downstairs watching a movie he he snuck up on me i was window peeping i was going window to window to window mm-hmm. and he uh scared the shit out of me quite frankly and then I, I was like, what's up, dude? What are you doing? And he stood there, bro. He didn't respond to me. He just literally was 
completely mimicking me. So he was like looking out the blinds and just right. everything, everything, dude, with uh, his body language and stuff, he was acting like he was gacked. And I felt like the biggest piece of human excrement in the fucking right. entire right. world, you know, Absolutely. just like, just like when you probably did your fifth step and you went over that story about, um, you know, fighting in front of the kids yep. in the driveway or, or when you, you know, they slept in the hot ass van and you yep. slept in the air conditioning. Like, I mean, I think I know I can only speak for myself, but I'm sure many of the listeners honed in, they, they keyed in on that. There's still some shame there attached to that stuff. And yeah, um, I try to remind myself uh, when it comes to that that stuff that it's 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 important for me to keep this stuff front and center so i think it's there's a healthy level of uh guilt or whatever and maybe it's more guilt now right like maybe it's not shame anymore because i don't think that i'm a piece of shit i just know that i was a piece of shit in that moment you know well and the promises in the big book it says we don't we uh we don't regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Right? right. So we have to keep the past right front and center to remind us of what's, what we can go back to what's waiting for us to come back to. Right. Yeah. Um, that made me who I am. So I went through all that to become the person I am today. And, you know, and I, I I'm not that person anymore. And that's, you know, and people that know me now, right. They only know me in recovery, you know, um, they don't know that person that I just laid out for the last hour plus. Right. Um, And you think about like, um, you know, it's hard to share some of these things, right? Like it's hard to share that you choked your girlfriend out. Well, I'll tell you right now, I had one ex roommate that I similarly, um, she attacked me and I choked her for probably like 15, 20 seconds. And I can remember, uh, just completely being like, almost like observing myself doing it. Like, and I was like, what the fuck am I doing? And I threw her to the couch and I went in my room and I fucking like butter knifed the door. And I told her, I was yelling, get out. You're not welcome here anymore. I don't want you here anymore. And I kicked her the fuck out. Right. But it was like, I was in my room, like breaking the fuck down, dude, because that wasn't me. And when we can lose that scary thought, you know, when you can (laughs) observe, when you can observe yourself, you know, losing control to that level. It's yes. It's a super fucked up thing to go through. And, but you know what, if we can honestly share that, right. And then there's so many people out there that have been through similar experience that are feeling the shame and that need to find a way to come to terms with the fact that they're not an abusive person uh, at heart, but that they abused a person, you know? Yep. So to your point, everything's got its purpose. And and these things, not only did these things make us who we are today, brother, but they, they are gifts that we can use that put us in a unique position to be um, a supportive person in somebody else's recovery today. Right. You know, the fact that I choked a chick out in anger one day but you know i've realized it in the moment and then i felt shame for years and then i found this path of recovery that 
helped me uh, unpack that and process it and make peace with it. Just let somebody else know that they can do the same thing. You know, your past doesn't have to define you. Damn Skippy. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No, it do not. Hey. All right. right. So what's up? Did you find one? I did. All right. All right. So hero by skillet. Okay. All right. Hell yeah. Thank you. Because when I do the show notes, I like to listen to the fucking songs, man. And I thought you were going to totally leave me. I was going to pick my own song. (laughs) No, no, I'm just playing with you, but man, what a pleasure. And thanks again. You know, I can't thank you enough for being on and recovering out loud with us. And as a reminder to all you listeners out there, if you want to share your story, by all means, you can email us at share at wayoutcast.com um, and you can book a interview slot with us or you can reach out to me personally. And, you know, the more voices, the better. We need to break this stigma. We need to let people know that there's recoveries out there and it's possible. And it's out here for anyone and everyone just waiting for you to reach out and grab it. Take hold of it for yourself. So This is true. Amen, bro. Aaron. All right. Well, have a wonderful night. And uh, thanks for being on the show, brother. No, thanks for having me. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to The Way Out Podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.